Well, it's appropriate as we look at 1 John chapter 2 this morning, talk about church struggles. There's no hurt like church hurts. There's no struggles like church struggles. And the church that John is writing to here in 1 John is a series of churches in Asia Minor who are in the throes of difficulty. And he, this morning, like a true affectionate pastor that he is, writes to them to encourage them about what it is he knows about them, and then because of what he knows about them, to challenge them to walk in a way that's consistent to the work of God within them. So I want you to to listen for that as we give our attention to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 and extending to verse 17. This is God's Word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, And the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we now come before your word, we want so deeply to know you and to hear from you, not just with the ear, but with the heart. And so we come, putting ourselves before you, asking for a great measure of your spirit, the spirit who alone can open hearts and enlighten minds, The Spirit alone who can take the Word on a divine errand into our hearts and portion out to us the specific measure of grace and instruction that we need. We are dependent wholly upon Him. And so having heard that Word read in our midst, we now, as we sit before you waiting on its exposition, we wait most of all for the voice of the Good Shepherd that we might follow him. And so, good shepherd, be mindful of who's in this room right now. What we need together as a corporate body and what every individual soul would require. Come and communicate to us your will and your wishes. And most of all, show us Jesus. For apart from him, we can do nothing. We ask this, In his precious name, amen. Well, I, probably like you, from time to time, get asked to write letters to those who are passing from one significant moment in their life to another. It might be a couple who is preparing to get 
married and someone comes to me as they might come to you and say, hey, would you write them a letter and would you give them just a little bit of instruction about wisdom as they enter into a life of marriage together? Some of you have probably written letters where a graduate who is standing on the cusp of passing from one time in their life to another time in their life and someone's come to you and said, hey, would you write them a card and would you tell them something that maybe your former self had wished you had heard or if you had been told and didn't really listen, you wished you'd heeded about what someone had told you before you made the step that you made? Would you write that letter? I get asked, as you might imagine, to write such letters just as you get asked to write such letters and I was reminded of one of those this week of a student who was graduating from high school. This is when I was ministering at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a family that my family was very close to. It was a student who I'd had a chance to disciple. And his family came to me and just said, it would mean so much if you would just simply write a letter and share your heart with them as they make this venture into college. And I want to simply read a portion of this letter to you because I think lays foundations for what I believe John is doing here in 1 John chapter 2. This is the letter. You are on the verge of a monumental step in life. In a matter of days, you will graduate from high school and you will enter college. That is an amazing privilege. And in the best sense, it is a feat to be both proud of and thankful for. Congratulations. In the years to come, you will grow in ways that you can scarcely imagine right now. Much of that growth will come through challenge and difficulty. And despite how it will feel at the moment, it will be good for you. Take it in stride. When you second guess and you want to quit, remember who you are and remember whose you are. That will get you through. College has the tendency of making you feel like you're grown up. And at times, smart enough and strong enough to do anything that you'd want. It can breed that sense that you're in control and that nothing can stand in your way. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Whenever you begin to think that you've arrived and you're tempted to take credit, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Trials and temptations are sure to come to you. And it's almost guaranteed that you will fall. No, I'm not a prophet. And I'm not a son of a prophet. But I do know my Bible. And I know my own heart. I was once where you are. I've walked with others through this rite of passage. When you fall, remember who you are. And remember whose you are. So who are you? You're the son of King Jesus. You're his prized possession. His inheritance lies entirely at your disposal. So live like it. Let his kindness lead you into a life of repentance. Restoring to you the joy of your salvation each and every time that you've lost your way. You wouldn't be where you are without Him. 
And you won't get to where you should be without him either. That will always be true. Don't forget it. It's easy to forget who we are. It may not seem that way right now, but trust me, it is. Whenever that happens, I want you to remember who you are. If you'll do this, you'll become who you're supposed to be. Trust me. Don't forget it. Remember who you are and whose you are and live like it. That would be a summary of what it is that John's telling us right here in 1 John 2, 12-17. A congregation that has questions, that has doubts. A congregation that has seen those who profess faith in Jesus then walk away from the faith. People they loved. People they ate dinner with. People they joked with. People they had history with. Leaf. Their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and abandon the fellowship. This is a group of fledgling believers with doubts, wondering how to make sense of what it is that they've experienced seeing this group of people who had fallen under the influence of false teaching and so much so had ultimately left the faith. Now wondering, how can I be sure that I know Christ and that the same won't happen to me? John has been putting them through a number of tests, tests that are theological. Do you believe the gospel as presented to you from the beginning by me, the apostle? Tests that are moral. Are you loving one another even as I have loved you? Tests that are communal. Are we caring for one another in the way that God has called us to care for one another, sacrificing for the needs of the body. John has put us through a number of examinations and he said really difficult things. Like if you really love God, you're going to keep his commandments. If you say that you know God, but you continue to walk in the darkness, it is clear that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. These are the words, these believers there in the church in Asia Minor have heard and like you and me, as we've been walking through this text, we've been rattled by those words, rattled in a good way. It's provoked us to do what we read earlier from the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. Not all doubt is a bad. There's a healthy kind that takes sober account of what it is God says in our heart in it and doesn't presume but in faith pursue certainty and assurance that one is indeed in Christ. That's what John is pressing us to, but he's been pressing us pretty hard. As John comes to verse 12, he wants to push back just a little bit for just a moment. Well, he'll dial back in. But he says, I want you right now to remember who you are. And I want to tell you what I, what I know about. This is one of the things I really love about John. He, he is such a pastor's heart. There's so much affection that you see in John. You see it, well, you see it in so many ways, but one of the ways that you see it is in the way he addresses the church. He refers to them three times over the course of the letter as beloved. 
You are, you are the beloved. And I address you as one who loves you. In this context, he's been referring to them as children here in chapter 2. Now that may feel on the front end a little derogatory. You foolish kids. No, 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 he doesn't mean it that way. He means it in the most benevolent, spiritual, and kind way of being children of God. You remember how John opened his gospel, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. John means that in the most affectionate way when he refers to them as children. I want you to see he does that. If you have your Bibles open, you can see with me a couple of places. 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. 1 John 2, 28, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Now, this has been the language that John has been using. He's been using the language of children, emphasizing their standing with the Lord. So it makes absolute sense that as he opens verse 12, that he would open it this way. I am writing to you, little children. It's a, it's a drumbeat to continue to assure them of who it is that they are. They are indeed the children of God. And John is doing this in order to encourage and to emphasize, as you hear my instructions, as you pass through my tests, I test you not as one who doesn't love you, but as one who loves you. And I test you, not as one who I believe is outside of the faith, but as one who I believe is a child of the living God. It makes real difference when you know that the person who's testing you loves you. It makes real difference. And you know that the person who is testing you, no matter what the score is that comes out, will love you regardless of the score and will encourage you in the way in which you must go in order for that score to be as it's supposed to be for a follower of Christ. It gives an incredible encouragement. And you can see that John has this kind of affection for this church. And as he moves into verse 12, I think that he's He's really, in a very real sense, if he was giving an oration, and some actually argue that this is a sermon, not primarily a letter, but it was orally spoken by John first, and then it was inscribed and sent out. If that were the case, this would be a moment where John would dramatic pause, and he'd say, now, listen, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, I want you to hear this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And you know the Father. You feel that moment? That's what he's doing here. He's, notice the repetition. If, if you look at it in your Bible, it's broken out almost like a poem, like a psalm. It's because he says, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. Like a poetic repetition. Little children, fathers, young men. Little children, fathers, young men. In repetition. He's writing it in a way that it will stand out. If you think about it in oral communication, again, as he says, I don't want you to listen to this. If you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. Also, if I were in the midst of a sermon to say, now listen, John is making a really important point here. And ladies, I really need you to listen to this. What, what would happen, ladies? You go, oh, okay, all right. I need to, need to listen, all right? Little children, 
have something for you. I need you to listen right now. Everybody, you know, quits drawing, kind of looks up, is right in that moment, and they think he's going to tell us a Chronicles of Narnia story. You know, that's what they're, you know, that's what they're thinking. Are you going to do something like that? Right, in that mo- John is in a very real sense in, in that moment, and he is tailoring his communication to three groups that are within the body here. This, this group called little children, as he addresses from the beginning, I actually do not think it's a group within, but it's a general term for the entire of the congregation. He says, I have one word for all of you within the body. Your sins are forgiven, verse 12, verse 13, and you know the Father. That's what I want you to know, all of you who I'm writing to. I know you well enough to say this about you, that I can't say about those who have left the faith. Be encouraged. I know this about all of you, but there are some of you among this congregation, you're, you're a little older. You've been in the faith for quite some time. You've made a few rounds around the block. You're a father. You're a mother in the faith. And he says, I want, I want to say something to you specifically, uh, those who are fathers in, in the faith. I want to remind you, verse 13, verse 14, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. Hear I saying that? You have history. You've walked this a while. You've known him who is from the beginning. He actually doesn't, it's the, only, it's the only group he doesn't repeat something different. For children, he says different things. For young men, he builds. But for fathers, he repeats the same thing twice. Fathers, I want you to know that you've known him from the beginning. I, I joked in the early service because... They're hard of hearing, you know, the fathers, they're older. And so he's got to repeat it twice or they forget. What did you say, John? And then he says it again. You've known him from the beginning. Now, if you think, how does a child like to be encouraged? They want to know, I know the father. And my sins are forgiven. How does a, an older saint love to be encouraged? You've been on this path a long time. You've known him from the beginning. You have a repository of wisdom and experience. You're not swayed by new-fashioned teachers who come in with a better gospel. You know better than that because you've walked. Fathers, you've known him from the beginning. He's encouraging those who've been in the faith for a while. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to be encouraged. When I write to you, I write knowing that about you. He says to young men, exactly what young men would want to hear. He says to young men in a building kind of way. Verse 13 Middle section, because you have overcome the evil one. 14a, because you are strong. 14b, and the word of God abides in you. And finally, you have overcome the evil one. He piles up phrases here with the young men, but he says exactly what young men in the faith want to hear, young women in the faith want to hear. You are strong. You are strong. You are abiding in the word of God. And I see Satan falling like lightning. You have overcome him. Now, what I want you to see him doing here is an incredible example of pastoral care for a discouraged and questioning congregation. He's practicing what I would like to refer to as spiritual encouragement. Spiritual encouragement. He's practicing it with the body. You know the power when someone comes up to you and puts their hand on your shoulder and they look in your eyes and they say, I want to tell you about something that I see in you. I'm so grateful for how it is that the Lord is working in you. When I think of the verses in the scripture that say this, I think of you because I see of what the Lord is doing in your life. What begins to happen in that moment? 
encouragement. Now, when you hear the word encouragement, you might hear it like a 21st century North American. That would be surprising. You are a 21st century North American. So if you heard it that way, it would be something like, oh, that's a sweet compliment. Oh, that's really nice. No, no, we don't mean it that way. It's not Southern. Okay? It's not, he's not being Southern here. This is, not, this is not niceties. This is not sweet nothings. He is instead taking the infallible word of God and the realities and the truths in that infallible word of God and he is directly applying them to the soul of one who needs to hear them. That's substantially different. That is substantially different. Now, I want to encourage us in this just by way of application just for a moment. Some of us have gifts of encouragement. Paul actually tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians as he outlines the gifts that some of us are gifted in encouragement. We come alongside. Some of us are gifted in discouragement. No, not really. But but some of us incline in in that way, in a a different way. Paul, Paul here is encouraging us in Corinthians. John here is showing us the practice of spiritual encouragement. Here's what I I want to pull from a couple of passages simply to guide us so that we would become a congregation where spiritual encouragement is the normal fray of body life as we work together. Wouldn't that be great? If when you were communicating with each other in the body of Christ, it wasn't simply, hey, how was your week? Oh, great. Your hair looks good. Is that a new coat? Et cetera. I mean, those got fine. That's fine. Wouldn't it be remarkable, though, if you said, you know, put your hand on someone's shoulder and you said, I thank God for this in you. When, I, when I'm here, when I intersect with you, here are the fruits of the Spirit I see being manifested in you. I'm asking the Lord, even as we're together, He would continue to do this in, in you. That, would, that's a, that is a remarkably different thing. What does it mean for us to become a spiritually affirming and encouraging congregation? Well, I think first we need to understand the word encourage literally means to give Courage. That's what I mean. It means to give courage. It's not just merely to, to puff up or make someone feel good. It is to speak to someone in a way that compels them to face the challenges and obstacles that are before them. So that you feel, after having engaged in the truth with another person, I can do that when I thought I couldn't. I can face that when I thought I would give up. It is to forge within someone courage. Listen to the way Hebrews 10 puts it. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, meaning to say that you are stirred up in love and good deeds through meeting together. It's one of the means that God has given. But he says this, but encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. He means to say, I see you. See where you are. You may be struggling. You may be having difficulties. I want you to remind you of the promises of God as the day draws near. Let's run together. Or I'm seeing an encouragement in you that I want to draw out and I want to see your gifts flourish in this way. So I speak to it and I tie the realities of the truth and the gospel in them. We're giving each other courage as the day draws near. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. He says, let no corrupting talk Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but such as is good for building up. Language of encouragement. And then notice how he says it. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, what I want you to see is the what of encouragement is the building up or the giving encouragement. The how is identifying what's the occasion. What's the circumstance? Where is this person? What is this situation we're in? What's been happening? What kind of word from the Lord do they need? That I might tailor it, that I might craft it in such a way so as that when I speak it, it speaks directly to where their heart is in the circumstances and occasion in which they find themselves, that they might be built up as the day draws near. Now, I think as you hear me unpack that from both Hebrews 10 and Ephesians 4, you're thinking, well, that's going to take a little time. Like, I'm going to have to actually think about the words that I'm going to say in order to encourage. And I'm going to have to take into account the circumstances and the situation that is surrounding in order to speak appropriately in that moment so that it begets grace to those who hear. So if we're in a moment of grief, for instance, which some of us may stay away from or may move towards, we may, in other words, rush in where angels fear to tread in that moment. We may stay away in an absentee kind of way that causes more hurt. But if we were in considering how do we actually say a word that fits the occasion so that it begets grace, we're beginning to take the word of God into the life of that person to remind them of the gospel promises that they may indeed have forgotten in order to strengthen them so as the day draws near. Or a person who's lost their job. Or a person who's struggling with sin and keeps working really hard and having no success, at least from their mind's eye. Or a person who has wanted to be married for many, many years but never seems to find that spouse and is beginning to wonder if the Lord is ever going to give them the person that they would want. Whatever the circumstances is, you're pondering reflectingly biblically about the occasion that it might have a gracious impact so as to build up in the faith for spiritual encouragement. Now that's just a little mini training union moment in the midst of this sermon, but that's I think what John is doing here. And I believe that he models it in such a remarkable way that it deserves a sense of pause because in a community that is committed to encouraging, to giving courage, there must be a biblical wisdom and depth that comes with that so that we are giving an apt word, a golden word in a setting of silver. And it has the effect of begetting grace in our lives. I would just like to appeal to your experience. You have, over the course of your life, had a number of people who have paused at one time, shape, or another and said something challenging, encouraging, comforting, rightly unsettling, whatever it is. And they've done it in tying it into the Word of God and God's wishes and will for you. And it has, in some of our lives in this room, made all the difference in the world. I can think back over specific conversations that I've had with men in my life who've taken me aside to say good and hard things. And the ability of the Spirit in that moment to open my ears and their wisdom to say words that fit that occasion has beget grace in my life of which I am utterly indebted to. Wouldn't it be beautiful if those moments were multiplied within us as a local congregation? This was a place where you came to get courage 
And you knew that the word of God that you've forgotten is going to be spoken into your life in fitting occasions. He's saying, remember who you are. What they need to hear right now, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. You fathers, you've known him from the beginning. You young men, you are strong. You are abiding in the word. You have overcome the evil one. You can see how strengthening the identity of these believers. And now, in a very real sense, it's also compelling them to take the next step. No matter what the obstacles or challenges may be. And so it's not surprising, in verse 15, he goes into our second point. And our second point is very simple. Remember who you are. And once you've remembered who you are, live like it. So live like it. And in, in verses 15 to 17, he says how we ought to live. And he says there are things that you ought not to do and there are things that you ought to do. There are negatives and there are positives. And he starts with the negative. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If your sins have been forgiven and you know the Father, if you've known him who's from the beginning, if you've overcome the evil one, if you're abiding in the word, let's take all that. If it's true, don't love the world. Now here's what I want you to see. He's not saying... If you don't love the world, you are going to become one who knows the Father. He's not saying that. Not earning, not earning anything. He says, because this is true of you, this has got to be manifestly necessary as an implication. If you love the Father, if you know the Father, if you've overcome the world, you're not going to give up into the world. Don't love the world. He's in a real sense saying, because I know your identity in Jesus is so secure. And it's so beautifully obvious that this is the way he's worked in your life. Don't compromise it by living in a way that's out of accord with who you are. You know our tendency, right? Our, our tendency is, oh, I'm healthy. I'm doing things right. I can lay back. I can relax. Tell me this. Has good ever come from, in your life from putting your guard down because you felt really comfortable? Has that ever happened in your life? It's like that mo the moment you begin to do that, you begin sliding backwards. Because there's a dynamic relationship that is at the very core of the gospel. That we're either advancing or we're moving back. We don't, we don't actually, we can't just stay put. Couples will sometimes tell me as they're dating and they're getting really close and that starting to throw around the M word, marriage, you know, and they're not sure if they have enough money to get married. She... Really the one? You know, all those kind of questions. They're going around. And they'll say, well, I think we're just going to kind of keep the relationship where it is right now. That always goes really well. Really well. I just don't want to advance any further with you. I don't really want to go back. I'm just going to keep it where it is. Relationships aren't like that. They're living. They're like a, they're like a plant. You know, a plant, it's either healthy and growing or it's not. It's dying. But you can't just go, stay right there. Stay right there. This is a living reality. Your faith is a living reality with the Lord and with the body. You can't just keep it where it is. So he's saying, because you're healthy, don't love the world. See what he's saying? Stay in the path of spiritual health because you're healthy. It'll continue to ensure your spiritual health as you stay in the way, the path of spiritual health. Don't love the world. 
Now, when I hear this phrase, don't love the world, hopefully what comes to your mind is sort of what comes to my mind. What in the world does he mean by not loving the world? Because God clearly tells us, John 3, 16, God loves the world. Okay, so God loves the world. In fact, he just told us in 1 John 2, 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Let me ask you, is a brother in the world? Yeah, he's in the world. So clearly there's a way to love the world and there's a way to love the things in the world and there's a way not to love the world and there's a way not to love the things in the world. We need to know what it is that John is really after here. And he actually says they're mutually exclusive. Just look at the way he says it at the end of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. So in some way, if you love the world in the way that John intends, you clearly don't love it in the way God means in John 3.16. God so loved the world. Because the love of the Father is not in you if you love the world. So he's clearly using these terms differently. What does he mean by love? What does he mean by the world? Because he's saying these things are mutually exclusive. Well, I want to just propose, propose, if I might, a definition. Just to work from and then work through a verse here to kind of help us wrap our heads around it. But I want to propose this definition that love for the world as intended here in verse 15 is when we look to the world for what only God can provide. That's what I think he means here. We can say that I think a number of ways and tease out the tentacles of this by implication, but I think let's just distill it to that. It's looking to the world for what only God can provide, and we might say what only God is designed to provide, what he alone can provide. Now, why do I say this? We'll look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, you might be going, well, there's more in the world than that. There's like bacon in the world, and it's awesome. And there's flowers in the world, and there's fall weather in Middle Tennessee that's in the world. And I just love those things. In fact, I got up this morning and just walked out my front door. It was really early, still dark, but it was cool. And wanted me, I wanted to put on my corduroy coat, you know, because it was the fall, and I just love it. Now, am I wrong for, for loving it? Should I not love the world? No, he's not speaking about creation here. Notice the way he puts it. He puts it, the world, all that's in the world, these are the three things he's talking about. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and what he calls here pride in possessions, which I, I'm sort of okay with as an interpretation or as a translation. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But notice what he says here, desire of the flesh. The word here literally means cravings, where you may have originally memorized this, because this is probably the most famous, one of the most famous texts in 1 John, is lust of the flesh. I think that's a very fair interpretation or translation of what is going on here in the Greek language. It is to say that we look to the world and we consume the world in such a way that we might be gratified and satisfied ourselves through our consumption of the world. We've looked at the world in that way, which means that we're valuing the world according to how the world serves us. That might be food. That might be possessions. That might be people. We have a tendency, right, to look at a person and go, oh, do I like this person? Can I use this person? Can this person help me get to what I want? That's desire of the flesh. I look at food, I look at things. Do I like them? Do they serve me? Do they bring satisfaction and gratification to me? Or are we thinking, 
whether I eat or drink, I do all to the glory of God. This is about Him, and it's a, it has a reflection with regards to Him. And what would it mean to godly, in a godly way, consume these things, both enjoy them without making them, as it were, idols of gratification and satisfaction, as he mentions here in the text. So he says desires of the flesh, and then he says, where do these desires of the flesh normally come from? Well, they normally come through the eyes. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that the health of the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is bad, the whole body is unhealthy. And I want you to think about what Jesus is trying to say there. He's trying to say, through our eyes, we're filtering things. We're making decisions about things. And we're considering how it is that we, what we, what we judge or view this thing based upon how it, how it, how it gratifies us, how it satisfies us, how, how, whether we like it or not. And we are engaging with the world not through the mind and the heart that is oriented to the will of God, but through the eyes and the immediate gratification of the flesh. He says that's the way of the world. Now, listen, this is how it happens. You go to the mall, right? You go to the mall and you see all kinds of things that you didn't even know you needed and now you must have, right? I have a friend who's been, you know, sort of looking for a new house. He actually loved his house. Now he started looking for a new house, and he hates his house. Why? Why? Well, you know why. As soon as you start looking at other houses that are better than your houses, all of a sudden you're not very happy with your house, and you've got to get a new house, and then you're going to get that new house, and it's not going to be as good as you thought it was, and you're going to have to find something else to fit into the vacuum of what you're sucking into your soul that will never feel the gaping hole that is there. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and he ends with pride in possessions. Now that language of possessions is the language of bios in the Greek. It's where we get the word biology. It literally means life. Pride in life is what's being said there. You might read that and go, well, I'm not that materialistic. Well, it's not just materialism. It's pride in life. So you go, well, I'm not, you know, you're picking on people who, you know, like to spend their money for their own gratification, but but, you know, I, I'm interested in achievement. Well, he, that's included. I'm interested in relationships. Well, that would be included. I'm interested in accolades. Well, that's included. Anything that you're using in life to take pride in, you're bolstering your identity in, that's included in what he's describing here. And it means that we are now become people who the old Puritans would describe as worldly. We are given to worldliness. And so if we take these three together, John is saying love for the world is an inordinate craving that arises from within us, often incited by the eyes, that settles into our identity, that we begin to look at all the things that we've done, experienced, achieved, received, and that's our life. That's her life. When the widow put in her two coins, the two mites in the coffer, Jesus looks at her and says, they give out of their abundance, but the widow gave out of her poverty all that she had. The word there is bios. She gave away her life. She gave away her life. Now, if you can think about it this way, this is exactly how the fall happened. In Genesis chapter 3, it's the desires of the flesh that rise up within Eve. As she looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and discerns that the fruit is, is, is able to make one wise. 
And she reaches for a position or an accolade or an achievement that's beyond the pale of what is appropriately hers. Being like God. And she says, I desire that life. And this is the rhythm that's been worked into the reality of our hearts in creation. And it's no surprise then that God said, if we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we would surely die. John says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Friends, I want you to think about this. If you're so consumed with the stuff that you have, the stuff that you've done, the people that you know, what you would consider your life, and you're resting in the identity of your life, John is saying, when you die, everything goes. Your life goes, because that was your life. And the world one day is going to go. And when the world goes, all that's going to go. It's passing away. And so John, as he speaks to us, is saying, I don't want you to be wiped away with a life that's been built upon sand rather than upon the rock. Because one day it's going to go. And you're going to go with it if you've built your life on the sand. And so John says, I want to give you incredibly helpful and encouraging news. Look at the end of verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is beautiful. Just perfectly obey God. It'll all be fine. For those who root their life in perfect obedience to the will of God, they will last forever. They will abide forever. Now, you're thinking, oh, it's, this has been so helpful. Um, up to this point, this is, you know, he's encouraged us. Sins are forgiven. You know the Father. You've known him from the beginning. You overcome the evil one. Now, just obey everything that he commands perfectly. In a moment like that, there's an incredible amount of recognition of brokenness and humility that must, if we're honest with ourselves, begin to wash over and into us. Because we know that that command is not something that we can obey, which is why this command is not first and foremost about you, but about Jesus. Because it was Jesus who alone obeyed the will of the Father. And it was Jesus alone who endures and abides forever at the right hand of of his father. It was him who in Matthew chapter 4 wasn't tempted by the evil one to seize upon the desires of the flesh when the evil one said, turn these stones into bread because I know you're hungry. And it wasn't Jesus who when he was taken upon the pinnacle of the mountain and he was looked out across all the nations of the world and the evil one said, I'll give them to you all the power that you want being enticed with the eyes. Jesus said, no, when we always say yes. It was Jesus who willingly obeyed his father even to the point of the Garden of Gethsemane where he is praying with great drops of blood. And we read the words in his prayer, not my will but your will be done. That led ultimately to the complete and utter sacrifice of himself. You see, this passage is saying the only way to get to the Lord is perfect obedience to the will of the Lord. 
And that is why you will never get to the Lord. But Jesus, who has perfectly obeyed the will of the Lord, gets to the Father on your behalf. And if you trust in him, then you get to the Father through his obedience to the will of the Father. And that's the only way you're ever getting to the Father. That's what this text is teaching. Now, when you realize that that's what this text is teaching us, here's when you begin to say, well, in Christ then, I can do the will of the Father. In Christ, I can begin to do the will of the Father. And I don't have to do the will of the Father as if to earn the Father's love. Jesus has already done that for me. So I get to do the will of the Father with the love of the Father at my back and the joy of the blow of the Father's love propelling me onward. And when I'm successful, I will be grateful to the Lord for how it is he has changed me in Christ. And when I fail, I will run to Jesus for forgiveness and repentance and I will seek again to pursue along the narrow way. But I won't seek to earn it as if it is mine and I won't make this life about all that I've acquired. I will make my life entirely about Christ for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. To live is Christ. To die is gay. That's the spirit of this passage. And that's why there is strength in passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are told that we are to live life as living sacrifices, acceptable in the sight of God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to the world. You know that the world is having less and less power over you when you are more and more willing to release the things of the world in saying yes to the call of Jesus. Every single week, we are put in the crucible of saying either yes to sin or yes to Christ. And when we say yes to Christ and we say no to sin, you know what begins to happen inside of you? You'll feel it. It feels like death. Because your body wants this. Your soul wants this. Your eyes are tantalized by this. You like the feeling of that thing. You like it makes you feel worthy. It makes you feel important. But over here, Jesus says, you don't need that thing. Because you are already accepted as a son and a daughter of the king. You already have every single blessing of the heavenly places at your disposal. You are a citizen of the heavenly places. You will be arrayed around the throne with Christ for all eternity in glory. And even right now as the Father looks at you, he sees the beautiful robes of the righteousness of Christ wrapped around you. You don't need that thing to make you feel like you've got a life. Your life is in Christ. That's a lie from the evil one. That's what he's saying. And when we begin to say yes to the life of Christ, you may begin to think, oh boy, that's when life will be so easy. Sweet. All life is going to come together. Let me, let me tell you, when Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will be done, did it get easier? No. But it got better. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And not just die as in the end, but daily bearing the cross. Daily dying to the things of the flesh. Daily letting that feel of, man, I really want that, but no. Happen more and more in your heart. And when you do, you'll experience a crucifixion. 
But on the other side of that crucifixion is a resurrection. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Your sins are forgiven. You are from the Father. You've known these things from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. Abide in His Word, John says. And as you do, you'll experience the newness of His life. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, confirm these truths to us as we seek to walk by faith and not by sight, as we seek to take up the cross daily and follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.